Welcome to the Green Alliance podcast. We are the charity and think tank that is all about achieving ambitious leadership for the environment. In this episode, we'll be bringing you the highlights from one of our recent online events, which discuss the groundbreaking Descupta review on the economics of biodiversity. We have to cultivate for the next generation a genuine affection for nature. We were delighted to be joined by Professor Partha Descupta himself, who set the scene for the event by outlining his thoughts on the shortcomings of the current economic system in relation to the biosphere and what must be done to reimagine it. So I will speak not to the interim report, but go beyond it to give you a sense of why I think the way economics has developed has misled us in many ways, uh, but of course here in a very crucial way uh, in our in our place, in our understanding of our place in the biosphere. This is not a criticism of my discipline. It's not a criticism of economics. It's more the way we have practiced it. Uh, and it's again, not necessarily a fault of the social scientists. Every so- social science and every science has a path that takes a path which is path dependent and small approximations can accumulate over time to steer uh, the subject away uh, from something of momentous importance. And it requires, say, if you like, a full-scale study, uh, refashioning of the discipline for that purpose. The three aspects of nature that are crucial to understanding the review, the attitude I've taken in the review and my 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 colleagues on the team and with an enormous amount of support from my advisory panel are the following. First, nature is mobile. It's always on the move. You might think trees are stuck to their roots and so they're immovable. But of course, that's just the phenomenon, the epiphenomenon, that's the epiphenomenon. The real phenomenon is an enormous amount of transmission of material. So it's one thing, it's it's mobile. A second aspect of nature, which really struck me more and more forcefully as the months have gone by, is that nature is silent. And the third is that it's invisible, mostly invisible. Again, trees are visible. And when the wind blows, they're not exactly silent. But again, those are epiphenomena. The deep phenomena are those three that I've mentioned. That has led me in the review to take a a turn, which I want to share with you because I suspect you will like it, which is that it's not our transformation that is required, is not something that can be done by government or even the international field, the United Nations, on its own. They have to be active players. goes without saying, and I wouldn't belabor that point because you understand it as well as I do. But, and it's not only the private sector. Again, you understand why, and I'll come back to that. Sir Roger is with us today. We agree on so many things that sometimes I wonder um, how it could have been since we had never met before the that the review was started. 
not just the private sector, but deep down, the work has to be done at the level of the individual citizen. And the mobility and the, the heterogeneity of biosphere, which is a characteristic that is so obvious that didn't require spelling out, mean, has meant, means that it's very location specific. Information is location specific. And it's, there's no way that incredible heterogeneity of information can be downloaded into one for the purpose of one agency. So it's not going to be top down, nor exclusively bottom up, which is the characteristic distinction that is made over the way we manage things. But it has to be sideways also. Uh, communities must communicate with one another, have to, by the nature of the beast. Even the Green Alliance are familiar with the fact that the source of our problem, the re reason for our enormous overreach and our demands that we make on the biosphere uh, relative to its ability to supply, meet that demand on a sustainable basis, has to do with what typically economists will call externalities, the unintended or un unaccounted for consequences of our actions on others. That's the start of the point problem, not the end. In economics, we are encouraged to find ways to internalize these externalities, either through taxation or whatever. These three features that I mentioned about nature and the fact that information is extremely concentrated on the people living um, on the site, so to speak, means that there is no way these externalities can be eliminated. It's not possible. So what does one do? Well, what one does what, or one advises, which is a logical implication of this, these facts, which is that we, at the end of the day, are responsible and our voices have to be heard. We, that is, the person on the site. However, that doesn't mean that this is just an anarchy. That's not, the, not at all the question. You bring to bear those policies that actually have a, can meaningfully address parts of the problem, this overarching problem. It goes without saying, we all have a role to play. But it is absolutely imperative the civil society or communities, these are the two ways of thinking about uh, groups outside government, outside specific sectors, outside the household and outside the market. Uh, in alliance with these, obviously, but we think of civil society and I like to think of communities as well because a lot of my work has been on poor countries where it's not so much civil society, but it's village communities which handle local uh, natural assets like local forests, woodlands, water sources and so forth. And there's a rich anthropological literature on that as to how they have been successfully managing it. And they did successfully manage it until of course the pressures grew too, too much, either through population growth or mismanagement in one way or the scientific mismanagement or very often, alas, interference from the state, um, where uh, for a variety of reasons, that interference need not have been malevolent necessarily, by the way. There are plenty of examples where it was well-meaning, but ultimately disastrous for the communities themselves. 10 years ago, or a little more than that, about 10, you know, about 10 years ago, I was asked by the then Prime Minister of India, 
Manmohan, Dr. Manmohan Singh to prepare a, a review of the way national accounts ought to be revised in for, for the state of India. And that review was, the, the, the report was submitted in 2013. Um, now, one of the things uh, I found, I've been in academia all my life, I haven't really been an advisor to governments or private sector or in any, in any sense ever, was whenever I was asked to meet some minister or in particular members of the Planning Commission of India, and many of them were actually acquaintances of mine and some even friends, uh, which say, now, Partha, it's all very well, but where's the bottom line? What's in it for, you know, at the end of the day, project comes along, you're saying that this is bad if it's a road project and it's good if it's planting trees. Uh, now, you know, when the, when the sums are done, they don't seem to show up. So I said, well, it depends a bit on how you do the sums. So he said, well, where's the bottom line? What's the economic argument? And I said, well, the economic argument is not the economic argument. An economic argument is what we make of the economics. There's no platonic economics out there. Economics is a servant to our, our moral status, if you like. So the, but of course, at the background was, we have all these market prices and they're not showing up as being desirable for the kinds of projects that you seem to hang for. So that of course means that the market prices are wrong. And of course the whole review is geared towards doing that. However, and I'll end by making one observation, which I hope will be useful to the Green Alliance when the next time you come across some um, obstacle to what you're trying to espouse is the following nature is also hugely interconnected now that sounds banal to all of you in the green alliance because you know it so but there are some implications of that which are important for us to take on board this interconnectedness shows up in a big way by the fact that when you um break up an ecosystem let's say through it by by, by constructing a road, the sum of the productivities of what's left is usually less than the overall productivity prior to your dismembering the ecosystem. Uh, because of, again, the reason is the mobility issue. Even a road can hamper and does hamper millions of organisms from being able to travel across it because they don't it's not like saying oh if i take 10 leaps i'll be in the other end that's not they will not evolve to see that or make that observation which means an implication of that is that green projects small green projects on the, on their own are very likely to be rejected you want to save a small wetland against a expansion of the road system and the data on the travel costs, savings of travel costs and the rest will beat up on any green argument that you can provide. However, if you take a huge number of such projects, interconnected projects, then things are different. And so thinking small is a bad idea in, in the economics of biodiversity. You have to think in lumps.
And of course, we do think of it, but when we talk about leaving a part of the oceans completely uh, devoid, uh, 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 barring them from an entire area rather than dismembering and putting into uh, bits and pieces. Now, in a way, this is a very good time for it. We're, when we emerge from COVID-19, there will be enormous demand for uh, investment. Where should that investment go? And there'll be a large chunk of investment there, which is, and this is not my guess, the government is actually talking like that. And many of us will be, of course, arguing that it should be towards green issues. And many people are now talking in that, in that using that language. The, the trump card there is employment. Green projects are likely to be labor, more in, labor intensive than um, transport or, or heavy industry, let's call it. Mm -hmm. But to us here, I would argue that's a added bonus. That's not the real reason. It's a good thing. It's, good, it's a double whammy that it's good for employment. But the gap that we have created between what we demand of the biosphere and the ability of the biosphere to supply that demand is so large now that it's an imperative that we have to make a big move. Small green projects are not the answer. After Professor Disculpt set the scene, Sir Roger Gifford, Chair of the Green Finance Institute, was invited to discuss how the review might be received by the finance community and why finance has such a crucial role to play in solving the biodiversity crisis. This is possibly one of the most interesting conversations of our day, not least as I, I completely agree that post the epidemic, it is a very good time to be having a discussion. I th the principal question I think is how do we involve finance in the solutions that Partha, to the, some of the issues that Partha has been talking about? Can finance play a meaningful part, or is it simply another lovely idea that somehow financiers control the world, therefore they are going to kind of solve all the problems as well? Not. And I chair our Green Finance Institute, a public-private coalition which was set up a year ago to create practical ways of mobilising capital into environmentally better projects here in the UK. Household heating, shipping, district and community energy, building retrofits and so on. And it has just published its first report on the energy efficiency of buildings, and it's a great read. I recommend it to all of you on the Green Finance Institute website. And we also have biodiversity loss firmly in our sights as something to focus on. And I think it's worthwhile to make a comparison between the renewable energy and the green finance markets as they've grown in a very short space of time with the economics and the finance of biodiversity and what we might expect to happen there. Because from a finance angle, it's fairly simple. If there's a risk of a particular investment or a risk in a particular loan or a risk of a particular political situation, then it can almost certainly be measured. And depending on how relevant that is or how relevant it is made to be, it can affect investment and lending decisions. So for green finance, it's very much about risk and measurement and the decisions and opportunities that can arise from that. Partha has talked several times before about nature as an asset to be managed, and I like that language because it greatly helps to put the value that biodiversity has into context and to try to give it a financial value. And something that we have all taken for granted as being pretty much 
not risk-free, but responsibility-free, is being better understood by business and finance as a finite resource, an asset that needs preserving. And the financial description is, I believe, helpful in bringing the way that we think about the, the human impact and the impact on people into, into the way that we're, we're uh, looking at the whole issue of how do we solve this problem. Partha also talked about the failure of economics earlier to bring this into proper perspective, and we can all admit that we're part of that. It's the short-term thinking that has so often been ascribed to bankers and to investors because they don't have an ability, I would say, to measure the longer-term risk that's out there. And that is what is needed. Actually, short-term thinking is really what many financiers are paid to do. They're paid for it handling risk in the best possible way they can. The long-term investment considerations remain a major issue, but it's very often not possible or very easy to introduce those long-term considerations into the short-term thinking. But I would argue there is real opportunity for hope uh, when you look at how the climate change discussion, the climate change market, has changed in just a few short years. Green loans didn't exist more than three years ago. Green bonds have been around for 12 years. The whole idea that we measure a risk and then we design a product to try and meet that risk is really very new and it's happened really quite quickly. And I think we can take those lessons directly over to the discussion around biodiversity. Every year, every half a year, uh, the, I think we can say that there's significant improvements made in the way that we understand climate change and climate risk. And what was seen once as just a physical uh, change risk, whether it's forest fires or flooding, is now seen to include the whole gambit of political reaction. I'm very fond of saying that nobody saw auto stocks as climate risk stocks until governments decided that diesel engines were no longer a good thing to have. So from that way of thinking about stocks or about food companies that are experiencing much greater forest fires um, in, in, northern, in northern Scandinavia, forestry product companies, of course, or the rules that can be imposed on the shipping industry by the IMO around pollution, suddenly stocks which have been considered as being, uh, or risks that have been considered as being acceptable, are seen in a different light. And the Bank of England has been leading some fantastic work on that. The, the problem with biodiversity, or the challenge with diversity, I should say, is that it is much harder to measure that risk. I'm very fond of saying that also that this is a global discussion around climate, it's a global discussion around biodiversity, but the solutions that we will find on climate will largely be local. It's our housing market here in the UK, very different from the housing market up in Sweden, or in Germany, or in France, or Holland. Whereas in biodiversity, much of the discussion is a global discussion, because we're talking about international trade routes, we're talking about products being sourced for one market, which very often come from far, far away without the same sense of responsibility in the sourcing. So we are making real progress on climate, and I think there are very good lessons to be learned from the way that we measure risk and look for them and then take decisions appropriately afterwards, which we will also bring into the biodiversity discussion. And it's why it's such an exciting, exciting review, I would say, to be part of. But essentially, we need to measure, we need to internalize the risks of biodiversity loss in a much better way than we do today. Everything from the sudden scarcity of a necessary product through to the damage to your stock price, if you are, in, for instance, proven to be sourcing product from an area as a direct result of, say, deforestation or with the consequent results of pollution of oil or sea. Many risks which we have previously considered normal business risks will increasingly be brought into the political and therefore the, the, the arena of how is this affecting biodiversity loss. It's almost as though we will apply a new lens and that will give rise to a new measurement of the way we look at risk. And I think as a result of that, we will see change both in corporate behavior and in financial behavior as it comes along.
Professor Desgupta was then asked whether the world has understood the seriousness of biodiversity loss and whether we're ready to tackle it as a matter of profound urgency. I'd like to think so because increasingly the stresses are becoming visible. When the Amazon burns, the whole world sees it burning. That didn't happen 30 years ago, 40 years ago. They would, it would be carried in one photograph, maybe in, the, in, a, in a Life magazine um, picture. Today, it causes hurt to people all over the world. Um, and then, of course, there are transmission mechanisms, which, for example, over plastics, that has really shocked people, as far as I can say. These were very, very powerful images. Part of it will come from pure aesthetics. Uh, there's a whole range of reasons people are being increasingly concerned about it. Uh, starting from the aesthetic to the kinds of issues that Roger has very eloquently spoken, which is threat to future uh, uh, profitability of a single enterprise, given that. Uh, and the fact that there is fragility of source of primary products uh, is becoming now more clear. Be bear in mind, these, all these activities, we have a, there's a history behind it. Mm. 150 years ago, it didn't matter if you destroyed one um, source of primary products. If it did, got destroyed, you moved to another source. And there are plenty around. You, move, you can move continents for your source. Today, that's becoming, it's being, they're being tightened. And so that's, there is hope there that, but at the end of the day, I can't help thinking that it has to be the citizen who puts pressure. You see, if you work backwards and ask what it is that is problematic for a private firm, ideal scenario would be that every input of the firm's production line will have had a price, a proper price, a input price, a market price. And so the profitability will include all the costs and, and the, hopefully the benefits. So what you're doing is recognizing that there's a number of factors, inputs, which are not priced. And so, of course, the firm will have a, no matter how generous the owner of the firm is or the manager is, there is a wedge between one kind of motivation, which is his or her obligations to shareholders. It doesn't have to be necessarily all that myopic either and the fact that uh, a source is being destroyed. It, that's to be removed. It has to be the case that the consumer must demand, look, what's going on in your entire supply chain? Give me an account. Professor Descupta was then asked about the failures of GDP to account for these issues and how this might be improved to address some of these challenges. We really have to look at balance sheets of nations, uh, wealth, including nature's, nature as an asset trying to put some value to it. And even if you can't put value, it doesn't, it's not the ultimate thing. If you have some sense of what the stocks are, that gives you a lot. You don't have to put a price necessarily. Mm -hmm. Stock, here's an endangered stock. There's another. Mm -hmm. That's for the macroeconomists. The individual firm's motivations, say profitability, is not really related to GDP at all because profitability includes what you're depreciating if the depreciation had been priced. Because it's not priced, it's overridden. So to that extent, there is a connection between the GDP view of life or view of macroeconomics and the profitability view of the micro manager. But 
it's to do with the fact that you're not taking into account what you're destroying. In other words, you're not pricing that destruction. So Roger was then asked about the role of regulation in addressing the issues discussed. There's a very key part for regulators to play. I I actually don't think most companies object to regulation. It's about having the boundaries and knowing what the rules are about, the, the rules of engagement about what you do. And I think every, everybody who has to fill out a form ends up complaining about the complexity of the form. But actually, without those regulations, without the bribery act, without, the, without, without all the different rules of engagement in international trade, it's actually quite hard to get on. And the more of them that, that there are that are clear and you know where you stand, the easier it is to do trade, not the harder it is to do trade. If you're, if you're, if you're a company of sufficient size and international stature and all the rest where you can actually handle the some of the, some of the documentation which can be complicated there are many international trade regulations to follow but nonetheless on the whole i would say that they are helpful to companies rather than a hindrance and in, particularly in the area of biodiversity i think there's a real role for government to help connecting the long-term risk the long-term risk to, to the world to society to the to the trade routes that we have to, to the profitability of the trade or the mines that we're using help that into a place where it can be preserved if it needs preserving, if it deserves preserving, and it can be looked after. And the the reason I make the comparison with climate is that the discussion around climate has brought governments to behave in a particular way, which has specifically stimulated a fantastic growth in wind and solar, with now a new new interest in hydrogen, in carbon capture, in tidal, in bio, and you name it, biofuels. And the, it's, driving, it's a driving countries like us to look hard at district heating and community heating, which has been the norm up in, in Scandinavia for many years. All of them are a result of government involvement and government promotion of certain activities. And I think wind and solar are two of the great 21st century, 20th century successes. They started with subsidy. They started with a, a lot, lot of government support. Often questioned these ghastly things rising into the skies. It's now some of the most efficient forms of new energy we have. Really quite remarkable. What I would like to do, what we want to do is to find the same tools that will produce uh, a, a revolution in, in the way that we eat food, the way that we consume, the way that we package our products, so that we can, with government assistance in the right way, and it doesn't just mean subsidy, it means finding the right way of assistance, but with government assistance, we can reach to the ways of behaving, the transforming the ways that we behave that we all think would be good to do. And that would be commercial opportunities for companies to get into that, whether it's finding different forms of packaging or different ways of growing food in tall houses, whatever it is. But I think the government policy is very important. And I think the regulation about what we can and can't do with products is very important. I want to follow up on Roger Gifford's final observations, because I think one of the transformative changes that is required is for us to accept those of us who are privileged to live in the West, Western democracies, that these externalities are so pervasive, the interconnectedness is so pervasive, that we, the idea that individual liberties are threatened by regulations, that has to stop. Uh, we cannot, our actions are affecting others all the time. Uh, externalities are not an exception, they're the rule. There may have been an exception 150, 200 years ago when mobility was restricted amongst communities. Only a few people moved, and that too slowly, we just have to accept the fact that that kind of raw individualism has to give way to some notion of uh, civic responsibility. And it can be local, that's fine, but a totality of local ones adds up to something rather dramatic. 
And uh, I like to, I think that would be the route I would go for. Education is extremely political education, civic. Civics used to be taught in school when I was a kid. And now I realize why it really should be mandatory in some ways. At this point in the event, questions from the audience were posed to the speakers. The first question asked was how can we make these arguments land with Treasury and with voters worried about their jobs and standards of living? One of the things that the review is pointing to is, of course, that there has to be some compromise on the standard of living as we now know it. This is not an argument for saying tighten your belt because that doesn't really mean very much. Um, it really means is what kind of resources we are using uh, to convert into finished products and the size of the finished products. The review goes into demographics as well. Population is one of the key factors here. There's a trade-off. You can have larger numbers of people if they each demands less of the biosphere. It's a simple arithmetic. So that's no big deal. It's really a combination of the two. You can't have it both ways, so to speak. And I think our, 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 the, the substance of our living standards as being materially based, intensive of the biosphere, that really has to give way. As an economist, obviously, I can only think of pricing arrangements or regulations, which are regulations, by the way, are an extreme form of nonlinear prices. Those of you know, it's, an, it's a sharp, can do up to here and then after that no, no farther. But it's basically the same stuff. It's an extreme form of it. I don't see regulations as a threat. They're a natural extension of pricing. They're natural, they're natural because of the uncertainties that Sir Roger was pointing to. Uncertainty is a reason for having regulations because you don't want the system to go beyond the tipping point and you don't know where the tipping point is. So you can't simply say, let's have a tax because in order to ensure that it doesn't go, you may have to raise the tax to the point where you basically killed off the entire industry or the entire sector. So that's the real reason behind regulations. It's a part of public finance. And I think if biodiversity enters the lexicon of the treasury, which bear in mind, this review was, was commissioned by the treasury. So there is hope yet. Um, and it's remarkable that the UK Treasury has been behind two reviews, one on climate change, now on biodiversity. So it must mean, at least I take it as meant, that economists in the Treasury recognize that there is a great deal of resources going to waste simply because they don't have prices, that the models on the basis of which income and expenditure uh, are estimated need to be revised. I, well, I was about to say the Treasury has been, for me, uh enlightened in the way that they have embraced this review and they really want to promote it and promote its uh, conclusions. Um, some very interesting points, and if I may say some assumptions in that. First of all, I think a number of studies have said how many jobs can be created through the green economy and through working in new technologies and new products. I'm, I'm certain that we can apply those in the area of biodiversity as well as we can apply them just through the green economy. Because um, you've said, of course, we're all worried about jobs and the standard of living. And I think the epidemic has taught us all a bit about the standard of living, which changes it from being a purely um, monetary, uh, monetary level or monetary standard. It, 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 it's birdsong versus motorways. It's clean air against speed and being everywhere all at the same time. Or do you really need to travel to New York for lunch and a meeting or can you do it by Zoom? All of which comes back to the way that we live and about our standard of living. 
and tragic that the epidemic has been, it does point to the obese, the diabetic, the sick, the ill, the elderly as being more vulnerable, absolutely tragic as I say. But it does teach us something also about our standard of life and standard of living. And I just think we will emerge from this looking at the world we're in, we already are doing, and wanting to build it back better in a different way, which is both green and more environmentally friendly, but which recognizes a higher standard of living as a result. We are learning to take a more holistic view of business and the way it relates to society. We're, we're taking a different view on the purpose of money and what money is for, what GDP is about. So the point about is GDP the right measure, well, could we find another that easily? But how we, how we define it, how we measure it, how we amend it if we can, would be a very interesting thing to do, to take account for new views, new ideas about what standard of living really means. At this point, Fiona Reynolds, who was chairing the event, intervened to ask a follow-up question. To be provocative, I listened to the Chancellor saying it will be a green recovery, you know, the dispatch box in, in the House the other day. At the same time, more or less, as he was urging people to spend and to go out and to consume, to get the economy back on its feet. So we do have these tensions in the system. And while I completely agree with you that consumers and people and the people's aspirations to connect with nature are going to be an important part of the future, we're not getting a clear message yet around quality of life rather than quantity of consumption. And I wonder whether you think your review can help with that narrative changing. Well, the final chapter is certainly going to be addressing that. Uh, we have already got a sketch of it in my mind anyway. Bear in mind one thing. We have COVID-19 has placed us in a position which is not dissimilar in some respects to what England faced in the 1930s. Mm. We do have a short-run problem regarding employment. And the objection that one has over GDP is its use over long-term thinking about the place of economic progress. Uh, so you can maneuver the, an economy which is fully employed, quote-unquote, in the usual sense of the term, people have jobs. But what they're doing takes a different direction from the one which, which is signaled by the, the way business as usual, so to speak. So the desire to raise demand in order to create jobs is very reasonable, absolutely essential, but is the character of the demand that needs discussion. Raising what kind of demand? Now, the state has a huge role to play in creating this demand, as we have seen. I fully am with, with that, totally. It's not going to happen by the wave of a magic wand. And that's where the state can guide in the choice of projects. And I want to come back to how I wanted to advise my young colleagues in the Green Alliance that this is the time to think big. Small, minor projects is not going to work because it can get beaten up by a treasury argument or any sensible argument by saying, well, look, this, this one has a higher return than this. Or it'll, uh, but the green thing has one advantage that is likely to be, and there's some work that's been done and further review suggests are going to be labor intensive. So that's a plus. The next question was on how we change the culture, style of leadership and the public mindset, which pits nature against the economy. The review ends with a plea for educational reform starting at the primary school level. We have to cultivate 
for the next generation a genuine affection for nature. And affection can only come through understanding because in many people's mind, including my own, I became much more fond of nature after I understood the intricate tapestry that underlays it, the structure of it. Understanding this behavior structure is really quite a, it's sort of awesome stuff out there under our feet, for example. So that's one, but that's a long-term solution, goes that saying, because it's next generation, and we have to really work on that. But again, the reason I emphasize it is that we have been overly concerned with trying to put out fires. The long-term has to be always kept in mind. So that's one step. Other steps are, again, in democracies, governments respond to citizens' demands. If we do not demand it, why should we expect our, our leaders to follow suit? They should they'll be the obviously the enlightened, uh, far-reaching person who has an agenda, uh, and then he or she promotes it. But unless we back, it, back that, the person will lose the election. So let's, let's not kid ourselves. In a democracy, it's we who have the power. Uh, we can in influence the private sector. Uh, we can ban purchasing goods from, we can, we can choose not to purchase from uh, an errant company, which has tried to fix, fudge a massive uh, mis mischief. Uh, we can do that. And we can insist on that our, our leaders take nature seriously. This is serious business. We are completely compromising the biosphere now. It's, it's, it, this is not marginal issues here. This is, we are really, we are really made a mess of things as a global community. I think we're perceiving a, a sea change in the way that our leaders look at this whole environmental area. If you told last election or one before that the, some, one of the main agenda planks would be the environment, I think that wouldn't have happened. And I think the whole Jugend zeitgeist brought around by Ms. Thunberg and the, the, the youth of today, they want to hear political leaders who talk about the environment and about the world they live in in a completely different way from just a few years back. And the fact that I think you have an enormous banking and investment community supporting that is genuinely making a difference to the way that people think um, and our politicians think, the mindset that was referred to between nature um, versus, versus the kind of carrying on as usual. But I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist. Well, so am I, Roger, and I always have been, but I'm feeling a bit Greta Thunberg-like here, actually, when she says, you know, our house is on fire and we're not listening. I mean, what we have understood on nature is that, you know, our planet is dying and we're not moving fast enough. And I suppose that the, the risk that many in the Green Alliance community feel is that we're not going fast enough. It's great yeah. that you know, the issues are on the agenda. It's great that we're all talking. It's great that we're getting words from the Chancellor and from the Prime Minister about a green recovery, but the actions are much less convincing than the words. And I think, I suppose, Partha, you know, how long have we got? Um, because we've got this major COP coming up next year on climate and biodiversity. It's great that they're together, but actually if we don't make big decisions, every year that we waste is not just one year wasted, it's a whole opportunity gone. How long have we got? It's really impossible to talk about how long because Bits and pieces have reached tipping points, have gone beyond tipping points. Uh, small communities have been destroyed and they've had to move. And when they've moved, they find that they're, they're not welcome and they get shot. So there are plenty of tipping points that have been overrun. Then you come to higher levels, if you like, higher in the sense of the topography of the situation. 
again, tipping points have been reached and breached, so to speak. Adjustments have been made. Uh, so the world, the, the biosphere looks quite different from what it did 20, 30, 40 years ago. We're not all going to die in at certain such states of the biosphere. In some sense, that's the bad news, because otherwise we would be more concerned about it. You can postpone, delay it, because the, as you say, Earth is being destroyed slowly, too fast for comfort, but slowly enough that we can keep on postponing it. The thing that really worries me greatly is that the countries which show serious concern about it, like I'd like to think with some pride, this country, UK, is just a minor player. Everybody is a minor player in the international scene. There can be a lot of thundering going on, but at the end of the day, there are 192 or 100, I don't know how many countries there are now, but that, that order of magnitude. And you have to carry uh, a whole lot to, to have meaningful conversation and people have to recognize that so much of that stuff is a public good. And that does require redistribution of wealth in some ways, payments, compensations, and so forth. But we don't, I don't think we're at that stage yet. I'd like to think I'm an optimist. I think things have changed enormously. I think Roger is exactly right. On the other hand, I do feel like Fiona that we haven't changed fast enough uh, because the mechanisms, the international mechanisms, are not geared to this. Bear in mind, we've been terrific. The international community has been terrific over things which really haven't been, and there's something for a political scientist to think about, been terrific over, say, postal, the post, transportation, airspace. There's a huge amount of uh, cooperation there over the, over the decades. I mean, all this traveling we used to do before COVID-19, how did that happen without cooperation? Planes weren't bumping into each other. There was a timing. There was a common, common pool of information, and it worked. That kind of cooperation hasn't translated into our relationship with the biosphere in the deepest sense of the term. Those coordinations were win-win for everybody, whereas here, it's not going to be win-win for everybody. The event finished with our speakers being asked to comment on whether the UK government is up to the challenge it faces, before Fiona shared her final thoughts on the discussion. Uh, there has a huge coordination issue to be resolved. Uh, England can take a lead, and is taking a lead with this review, and it took a lead over the, on the review of the economics of climate change. So yes, I think the UK has a moral high ground on this one. Definitely, because it's providing, it's put some resources in after all. It's, you know, uh, it's, it's not exactly costless to produce these re reviews. So I think I'm not so worried about the UK. I'm worried a lot more about all the other players. And there are many, many types of voices. The tone, the discussion that we're having here could seem alien in some societies, even as we speak. And societies are like countries which are near to us in, in emotional terms. I'm thinking of large parts of the United States, which would find this discussion, uh, if not weird, certainly <laughs> strange in some sense. So we have to carry that as well. There is a diversity of interests, economic interests. As I said, this is not a one where everybody wins. 
have some compromises have to be made. Thank you. And, and Roger, some final thoughts from you. Yes, I, I mean, I would say that the government, uh, in my experience, is up for the challenge. But of course, they're looking to the business and finance community for support. And at the end of the day, I, I think it's important to recognise that the, the real problem or the real challenge with a lot of this is that you and I decide to buy food with plastic around it. And we decide that our energy form and the, and the way we travel and the products that we buy are the ones that they are. And it's the pressure that we as individuals or we in our, in our organisations put on the larger organisations above it and the sellers of these, of these products that really is going to make the end difference. No government said the world shall now be taken over by the mobile phone. No government said payment systems in Kenya and Nigeria and Ethiopia are now going to be run on a mobile phone. But it happened because of the opportunity that a very clever company, clever companies, saw with developing the whole mobile phone telephony and business. I think we've got some similar analogies that we've made on energy, where individual solar panels, individual little windmills, enormous amounts of renewable energy are really changing the way that we look at energy. And I would like to find those solutions on biodiversity, particularly around plastics and around sourcing of food as well. And that's why it's such an exciting project to work on. I'm so delighted to be with you, Partha, in this journey. To me, I mean, this is the absolute sort of core proposition of our times. I think we have now fully understood that, uh, as Partha often puts it, that we aren't separate from nature. We, as humans, are completely within nature and we have created the crisis we're in and we have to get ourselves out of it. So many of the messages around our role as consumers, as, as citizens, as active believers in nature, you have said, I, I wholeheartedly agree with, but I also know that we need to be led and we need to be shaped and we need to be um, sometimes regulated to do the right thing. And we've had a good discussion about some of the really quite radical changes that are going to be necessary if we're going to get ourselves to a point where we're living within the regenerative capacity of the planet. That is, that is a huge challenge. It's one that we must face and we must face together and it will have many different forms. But I just want to thank Partha particularly for being the person who's lit that candle, if you like, and shown us with piercing clarity um, both the dramatic truth but also the scale of the actions that we have to take. Um, and if we can persuade our governments and many, many others to act, we will not just be doing the right thing and doing a good thing, but doing the absolutely necessary thing for the very future of humanity. So these are, these are not small stakes. And we're enormously grateful to you, Partha, to Roger, for joining us today, for joining in our debate. Um, this will go on. This is kind of the primary issue of our times and we all need to be in it together thank you for listening to this green alliance event podcast keep checking in as we'll continue to bring you highlights of our events as well as specialist interviews you can subscribe to the green alliance podcast on your favorite podcast app and you can follow us on facebook or twitter at green alliance uk